From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The Colorado Supreme Court's decision is wrong and should be reversed for numerous independent reasons. By engaging in insurrection against the Constitution, President Trump disqualified himself from public office. The hearing's over, now we wait, as justices, who then interrogated the attorneys you just heard, decide whether Colorado was right to kick Donald Trump off the primary ballot. We'll listen to highlights. Then why sanctuary city is a squishy term, and the pressure on South Asian kids to go into STEM careers rather than the humanities. Every day when I go into work, I'm gonna be like, damn, my parents made me do this. Or like, I'll go into work unhappy in regards to them. And that's why I told them, I was like, hey, I don't wanna be mad at you for my work. An informed and engaged community and nation grows stronger with access to credible and accurate reporting. NPR and CPR news teams are tireless in their efforts to deliver a full picture of the facts. Two organizations working together for a more informed public, one better equipped to recognize false claims and disinformation. Philanthropic gifts help CPR News and NPR do this important work. Explore ways to give on the support page at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Now we wait for the U.S. Supreme Court to decide if Colorado was right to rule Donald Trump an insurrectionist and remove him from the GOP primary ballot here. We'll avoid conjecture and instead share a few highlights from Thursday's hearing in Washington. Let's begin with Jonathan Mitchell's opening remarks to the court. He represents former President Trump. The Colorado Supreme Court held that President Donald J. Trump is constitutionally disqualified from serving as president under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. The Colorado Supreme Court's decision is wrong and should be reversed for numerous independent reasons. The first reason is that President Trump is not covered by Section 3 because the President is not an officer of the United States as that term is used throughout the Constitution. Officer of the United States refers only to appointed officials and it does not encompass elected individuals such as the President or members of Congress. This is clear from the Commission's Clause, the Impeachment Clause, and the Appointments Clause, each of which uses officers of the United States to refer only to appointed and not elected officials. The second reason is that Section 3 cannot be used to exclude a presidential candidate from the ballot, even if that candidate is disqualified from serving as president under Section 3, because Congress can lift that disability after the candidate is elected but before he takes office. A state cannot exclude any candidate for federal office from the ballot on account of Section 3, and any state that does so is violating the holding of term limits by altering the Constitution's qualifications for federal office. The Colorado Supreme Court's decision is no different from a state residency law that requires members of Congress to inhabit the state prior to Election Day when the Constitution requires only that members of Congress inhabit the state that they represent when elected. In both situations, a state is accelerating the deadline to meet a constitutionally imposed qualification and is thereby violating the holding of term limits. And in this situation, 
a ruling from this court that affirms the decision below would not only violate term limits, but take away the votes of potentially tens of millions of Americans. I welcome the court's questions. And those questions came, culminating in one from Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson. The Colorado Supreme Court concluded that the violent attempts of the petitioner supporters uh, in this case to halt the count uh, on January 6th qualified as an insurrection, uh, as defined by Section 3. And I read your opening brief to accept uh, that those events counted as an insurrection. Um, but then your reply seemed to suggest that they were not. So what, what is your position oh, as to that? We, we never accepted or conceded in our opening brief that this was an insurrection. What we said in our opening brief was President Trump did not engage in any act that can plausibly be characterized as insurrection. All right, so why would not this not engage. be an insurrection? What is your argument that it's not? Your reply brief says that it wasn't because I think you say um, it did not involve an organized attempt to overthrow right. the government. So That's one of many reasons. But for an insurrection, there needs to be an organized, concerted effort to overthrow the government of the United States through violence. And this and So the point occurred. is that a chaotic effort to overthrow the government is not an insurrection? No, we didn't concede that it's an effort to overthrow the government either, Justice Jackson. Right? None of these criteria were met. This was a riot. It was not an insurrection. The events were shameful, criminal, violent, all of those things, but it did not qualify as insurrection as that term is used in Section 3. Thank you. Because, thanks. Trump attorney Jonathan Mitchell and Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson. Now, opening remarks from Jason Murray, attorney for the Colorado voters who brought this case, including former state lawmaker Norma Anderson, whose name it carries. We are here because for the first time since the War of 1812, our nation's capital came under violent assault. For the first time in history, the attack was incited by a sitting president of the United States to disrupt the peaceful transfer of presidential power. By engaging in insurrection against the Constitution, President Trump disqualified himself from public office. As we heard earlier, President Trump's main argument is that this court should create a special exemption to Section 3 that would apply to him and to him alone. He says Section 3 disqualifies all oath-breaking insurrectionists except a former president who never before held other state or federal office. There is no possible rationale for such an exemption, and the court should reject the, the, the claim that the framers made an extraordinary mistake. Section 3 uses deliberately broad language to cover all positions of federal power requiring an oath to the Constitution. My friend relies on a claimed difference between an office under and an officer of the United States, but this case does not come down to mere prepositions. The two phrases are two sides of the same coin, referring to any federal office or to anyone who holds one. President Trump's other arguments for reversal ignore the constitutional role of the states in running presidential elections. Under Article II and the Tenth Amendment, states have the power to ensure that their citizens' electoral votes are not wasted on a candidate who is constitutionally barred from holding office. States are allowed to safeguard their ballots by excluding those who are underage, foreign-born, running for a third presidential term, or as here, those who have engaged in insurrection against the Constitution in violation of their oath. I welcome the court's questions. And there were questions aplenty. The court largely seemed skeptical of arguments to keep Trump off the ballot. 
will highlight an exchange having to do with precedent. If the Supreme Court upholds the Colorado ruling, might the label insurrectionist become just another tool in the political toolbox? Here's Chief Justice John Roberts. What do you do with the, what I would seem to me to be plain consequences of your position? If Colorado's uh, position is upheld, surely there will be disqualification proceedings on the other side, and some of those will succeed. Some of them will have different standards of proof. Some of them will have uh, uh, different rules about uh, evidence. Maybe the Senate report won't be accepted in others because it's hearsay. Uh, Maybe it's beyond a reasonable doubt, whatever. In very quick order, I would expect, um, although my predictions never been correct. Uh, I would expect that uh, a goodly number of states will say, uh, whoever the Democratic candidate is, you're off the ballot, and others, uh, for the Republican candidate, you're off the ballot, and it'll come down to just a handful of states that are going to decide the presidential election. That's a pretty daunting consequence. Well, certainly, Your Honor, the fact that there are potential frivolous applications of a constitutional provision isn't a reason— Well, no, hold on. I mean, you might think they're frivolous, but probably the people who are bringing them may not think they're frivolous. Um, Insurrection is a broad broad term, and if there's some debate about it, I suppose that will go into the uh, decision, and then eventually what we would be deciding, uh, whether uh, it was an insurrection when one president did something as opposed to when somebody else did something else, and what do we do? Do we wait until near the time of uh, uh, counting the ballots and sort of go through which states— Uh, are valid and which states aren't. There's a reason Section 3 has been dormant for 150 years, and it's because we haven't seen anything like January 6th since Reconstruction. Insurrection against the Constitution is something extraordinary. It seems to me you're avoiding the question, which is other states may have different views about what constitutes insurrection. And now you're saying, well, it's all right because somebody, presumably us, are going to decide, well, they said they thought that was an insurrection, but they were wrong. And maybe they thought it was right. And we'd have to develop rules for what constitutes an insurrection. Yes, Your Honor. Just like this court interprets other constitutional provisions, this court can make clear that an insurrection against the Constitution is something extraordinary. And in particular, it really requires a concerted group effort to resist through violence, not some ordinary application of state or federal law, but the functions mandated by the Constitution On your, on your point that it's been dormant for 155 years— Justice Brett Kavanaugh interjecting there. And so we await a ruling in Trump v. Anderson. CPR News will have special coverage as soon as the decision comes down on air and online. After a break, the rocket scientist versus the journalist, a new film about the shame some kids feel if they choose a career in the humanities. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Colorado voters have done everything from legalizing mind-altering substances to creating paid family leave. That's a lot of power. How will voters use it in this year's elections? Abortion, taxes, and more are likely to be on the ballot for you to decide. I'm CPR government reporter Andrew Kenny. I enjoy diving into the most complex issues to help you understand the choices you're asked to make. Hear my stories on CPR News and go further with unfolding coverage at CPR.org. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Parents pushing their kids towards a certain career happens in many cultures. But that pressure can be extreme in South Asian families. It's the subject of a new film from a Bengali-American student in Fort Collins. 
how Asians in the West are typically expected to be doctors, lawyers, or engineers, leaving very few to stray from the norm. And in that small group to stray from the norm is little old me. Hi, I'm Ali Niaz. I am a current undergraduate student here at Colorado State University, and I'm studying English and journalism. My life revolves around the humanities, and what I've come to notice is that there aren't very many people that look like me in my classes. There's a battle going on in my culture, STEM versus the humanities, and unfortunately, I'm on the losing side. And this is me figuring out why. A clip from The Rocket Scientist versus The Journalist by Ali Niaz. It's available online and earned him recognition in this year's Hearst Storytelling Competition. We caught up at CSU. Hi, Ali. Hey, Ryan. I'd love to hear a little more about your parents, for starters, and their journey, Mm -hmm. and maybe how that informs their hopes for you. Yeah, absolutely. My parents, they were born and raised in Bangladesh, and my dad, especially, he grew up in a small town called Kulna, and I remember he would always tell me about what his experience was like in Kulna. He would hear the traffic a lot. There's not a whole lot of, like, traffic regulation, so it was just traffic you'd hear, like, all the time, and he always dreamed about coming to the U.S., I mean, he was a very big fan of America when he was growing up. And then my mom grew up in a small village. And when they moved over here, they immigrated over here. And they grew up that did have, like, different expectations of what life should look like. And you were born here, first generation. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. Well, is the traffic better? Does your dad report? <laughs> it is. It is. Okay, good. Yeah, Just... definitely better. <laughs> in high school, uh-huh. you did theater. Yes, sir. You dreamed of being an actor. I did. How did they react mm-hmm. to that news? So... It's a very common thing in a lot of Asian cultures, especially in South Asian cultures. There's, like, a certain idea of what kids should be doing. The main three is, like, doctor, lawyer, engineer, right? And growing up, my mom was like, oh, you should be a doctor because I really enjoyed helping people. And I was like, I feel like that's the best way to help people. Then as I kind of figured myself out more and I got involved in the arts, I realized that I really enjoyed storytelling. And whenever I was acting on stage and telling a story, it felt incredibly powerful to me. It felt natural to me. And I felt more inclined to do that as opposed to math and science stuff, STEM-related stuff. I had great respect for it, but I just felt more drawn to the arts. And I remember there was a play that I had done my junior year of high school, and there was a character that I played. It was like a parody of Harry Potter. Okay. And it was really cool to tell that story and to hear the audience like verbally react to my monologues. And afterwards, I had people come up to me and tell me how powerful the story was. And that's when I realized that this is like what I really want to do. And my parents, I could tell I was passionate about it, but they were very, very iffy about me pursuing a career as an actor because you don't really know when your next paycheck is going to come. You don't know. Or if a paycheck is exactly. coming at all. Yeah. Exactly. And so just the, the stereotypes of like what it's like to be an actor in New York City and L.A. just struggling constantly. And they they didn't want that for me. That When they came here, they struggled a lot. My dad washed dishes for a long time, making barely any money. And it's this thing I like to call the, the immigrant survival mindset where you have to work really hard to get somewhere. And the immigrant survival mindset, yeah. mm-hmm. which they no doubt pass on to their kids. Yes. No, definitely. They didn't want me to struggle and feel the same things that they felt when they moved here. Why didn't you become an actor? Mm-hmm. I mean, was journalism a sort of compromise? So I wanted to be an actor for a little bit in high school, and then I had conversations with my parents about it. And when they were kind of open to the idea of it, there was like a weight that was lifted off my shoulders. Oh. And it was kind of like, because they didn't want me to be an actor for a little bit, it made me want to be an actor <laughs> even more. Kind of like the rebellious, you know, 16-year-old teenager type thing. And then 
I got rejected from this play that I wanted to be in. Oh. And the not getting called back really hurt. So then I was like, okay, being an actor, you're going to get rejected a lot. And I was like, I don't know if I can do that. You know, the reason I ask that is that I wanted to be an actor as well. Yeah? Yeah, as a kid, I wanted nothing more than to have my own sitcom. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, I do think broadcast journalism in particular, since it has like showbiz dimensions, felt like a reasonable compromise. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> How do you think being a son mm-hmm. affected the expectations your parents placed mm-hmm. on you? So I do have a, a younger sister, and I feel like growing up, um, especially with like the cultural norms that we have in South Asian household or an Asian household, the male, like the, the patriarchal figure is always the person I'm supposed to be in charge. So I kind of had this idea of, I know my dad feels this a lot, like, you know, coming here, washing dishes, working long, long hours to just provide money, just pay rent or to um, have food on the table. Um, I think that was kind of projected onto me. And now my parents are pretty comfortable and that immigrant survival mindset is still definitely there. But, you know, just the patriarchal idea of I have to provide for my family. Mm-hmm. I can't. That was part of the pressure. Yeah, definitely. And also just um, uh, the struggles of like communicating my emotions and feelings. So my family is uh, the very emotional people, which I think is awesome. They're, they're <laughs> very hypersensitive people. They can read people very well. But it can be difficult when our culture hinders that communication where it's okay, like you're struggling through something, just push it down, get through it. Asian students make up about 3% of enrollment at CSU Mm -hmm. and South Asians an even smaller percentage. Yeah. And I understand that making this film helped you connect with other people who share your culture. Absolutely. You joke in the film that you would just go up to people who kind of looked like you and say, hey, can we talk? Yeah. I remember my freshman year, I was playing volleyball and there was um, an Indian kid on the other team, and he made eye contact, and I walked over to him, and I was like, "Like you're brown, I'm brown. Like this is it's cool. It's nice to see uh, a friendly, familiar face, even though I don't know him. It was just nice to see someone that looks like me. And for my documentary, absolutely. I whenever I feel like I see a brown person, an Indian person, a South Asian person, I I, I notice it, and kind of like a sense of home because I had grown up with it my entire life in Texas, and I feel like. Mm. I wasn't able to fully appreciate it until I left and kind of lost that. And so the people I interviewed in my film, um, Ariana, Faraz, and Akash, people I just kind of found around campus. And they smiled and they all like acknowledged that this is an issue about the humanities not being something that's seen as important in our culture. And they're all lovely people with different personalities. And it was just, it made for a really awesome experience talking to them. You indeed met a young man named Akash Kakamanu. Mm-hmm. And I thought what he had to say in the film was so powerful. Mm-hmm. Uh, he discusses an exchange he had with his parents. Yeah. I was trying to tell them, I was like, hey, I don't want to be a doctor. And then they were like, oh, no, you're going you're gonna to be happy if you're a doctor. You're going to make so much money. Mm-hmm. Right. And I was like, okay, I'm going to make money. Yeah, sure. But like every day when I go into work, I'm going to be like, damn, my parents made me do this. Yeah. Or like I'll go into work unhappy in regards to them. And that's what I told them. I was like, hey, I don't want to be mad at you for my work. I don't want to be going into work every day, like clocking in and be like, oh, I hate my dad. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, and that was, a, that was a big thing. I think that resonated with them a lot. Uh-huh. But it's just differentiating their view of happiness versus my view of happiness. I think what stands out there is you don't want to resent mm-hmm. the people closest to you. Absolutely. For them driving you into a career you don't care about. Mm-hmm. Does that resonate with you? Um, yeah, absolutely. And again, it ties into the whole idea of immigrant survival mindset. Happiness is viewed differently. Happiness is if you have 
roof over your head and food. You can be with your family, have money for health insurance and health care, just kind of like basic needs because they struggled with that when they moved over here. They mm-hmm. didn't have that. But as you know, first generation kids, it's uh, a bit more complicated than that because we don't need to just survive. Like we should have the ability to enjoy life, to do things that we want to do. But it's just so ingrained into them, the immigrant survival mindset. It does strike me that after this project, you have a greater sense of why your parents Mm -hmm. drove you Mm -hmm. to STEM Mm -hmm. careers. Mm -hmm. I mean, I hear in your responses a kind of empathy. Yeah. Do you think that it helped your understanding? Mm -hmm. Definitely. You know, my family and I would go back to visit Bangladesh kind of every other summer. So I had a lot of experience there. And spending time there as a kid, I I really hated it because it is dirty. There are a lot of animals on the street and I, I love animals. I don't see like dogs and puppies and little kittens just walking around. Tugging and, at your heartstrings. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, as I mentioned before, there's not really traffic regulations. So we'd be stuck in traffic for a while and there'd be beggars that would kind of walk on the street knocking on the doors and they wouldn't have like arms or legs or um, they'd be scarred. And it was quite traumatic seeing that as a young child and I really hated it. And then as I kind of grew up, I came to understand the importance of that because I'm incredibly privileged individual. I'm able-bodied. I'm a male. I have a lot of things in my life that um, make life a lot easier. But being exposed to what my parents grew up with, I didn't even like realize it until a couple of years ago, like how grateful it made me. Mm. And understanding that it was the immigrant survival mindset, but it's also like they, they know what it looks like to not have money. Um, and, you know, sometimes I'd see mothers with their babies just Walking on the windows of cars that were stopped because they can't move forward asking for money. And I'd always want to give them money. My mom would sometimes, but it's just when, once you give someone like a dollar or two, like everyone else like will show up to the car and you can't like really move. It's it's a kind of like paradoxical because you want to help, but mm. you can't help everyone. And it, of course, is such an indelible image for you, but mm-hmm. also for your parents as they think about what they want for you in this country. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. yeah. Students are not the only subjects of your film. Mm-hmm. So is a South Asian English professor here at CSU, mm-hmm. Dr. Aparna Golapudi. Yeah. As soon as I told people that I want to do uh, an English honors, as it's called there, a lot of people were, oh, so you basically are not interested in education anymore? Um, Do you want to get, like, is it because you want to get married and be a housewife? Like, what else is an English degree good for kind of idea? I understand that Dr. Golapudi has been an important influence on you. Yeah. How so? How I had met her was I was doing a a study abroad program last summer, and uh, we were emailing back and forth, and then I, I noticed her name, and I was like, hey, she's a South Asian. This works perfectly with my project is because she was in the English department. So I reached out to her. We had a conversation and it was incredibly powerful because she grew up in India. And again, like as she said, uh, when she decided to do an English honors, people were like, oh, so you're just you're giving up. Like people didn't see the importance of English in our culture. And she spoke a lot about that and how there is a certain kind of person that is depicted in the humanities, which was usually like a white uh, Eurocentric white male idea of like what a human is and she explained that to me and like the history of the colonization of the English language in India and it was just mind-boggling to kind of see the historical context of why English 
is perceived in the way that it is, why the arts are perceived in the way that it is. And mm. because and, they were so often colonial, that's what yeah. you were exposed to in yes. schools. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So you had to unpack that too. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was a lot. Where were you studying? It was at Oxford. At, at Oxford? <laughs> yeah. Okay, so even more to unpack. <laughs> yeah. Because you're at the seat of the, colon, of yeah, the colonizer. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. Mm-hmm. I noted in the introduction that you landed an award for this film. Yeah. And it made me wonder, do you feel you have to be the best mm-hmm. in English and journalism now that you've chosen the humanities over STEM? Mm-hmm. Like, if I'm going to do this... Mm-hmm. If I'm going to deviate from being a doctor, mm-hmm. I better be the best filmmaker. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I better be the best, mm-hmm. uh, you know, poetry writer, mm-hmm. what have you. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I think about that a lot because there aren't very many people that look like me in the, the fields that I'm pursuing. And there are some people that don't care a whole lot about their um, South Asian identity, but I care a lot about it. Because it, it makes sense because, like, some people, they want to be in the field that they're in. They want to be actors or, um, you know, filmmakers, and they want to just be that. They don't really want to care a whole lot about their identity, which is totally fine. But to me, it's something that's really important. And I want to bring awareness to it. So there's a part of me that, like, wants to be the best at it and show people that they can do it as well. Um, I was a— That um, feels like a lot of pressure, though, Ollie. It does. I, I do put a lot of pressure on myself sometimes. But if I can make a difference— because I, I like to, like, aim pretty high, and then uh, sometimes I can't fulfill those expectations, but I know that I'm at least, like, making a difference. If I can help one person to pursue something they want to do, I think I'd be happy. Thanks for being with us. Yeah, thank you. Ali Niaz is a junior at Colorado State University. At CPR.org slash Colorado Matters, we'll link to his film, The Rocket Scientist versus The Journalist, A Battle Within Culture. He made the documentary as part of the Northern Colorado Deliberative Journalism Project. And Colorado Matters continues into this next half hour with what it means to be a sanctuary city and what it doesn't mean. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. A town nestled at the foot of Mount Princeton has an incomparable view of the collegiate peaks, and its name reflects that beautiful view. But how do you pronounce its name? Is it Buena Vista? Or is it Buena Vista? And how did that second pronunciation come about anyway? Listen to the next Colorado Wonders. Read the story at CPR.org. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Tens of thousands of new immigrants have arrived in Colorado in the past year. The numbers stress the system as people look for a place to stay, yet are unable to work legally. In El Paso County, commissioners are not laying out the welcome mat. Here's the chair, Cami Bremer. Allow me to state unequivocally that El Paso County will not be designated as a sanctuary county. Our observation of cities such as Denver and Chicago, which have adopted such policies, reveals a clear pattern, the overwhelming strain on local resources. 
the overextension of services, and the substantial financial burden on their budgets, and a conflicting message that our laws don't matter. El Paso County is home to the state's second largest city, Colorado Springs, and that term, sanctuary city, is loaded, experts say. CPR's Paolo Chalceda has some perspective. Hi, Paolo. Hello. First, talk about the discourse around sanctuary cities lately. Yeah, over the past year, thousands of immigrants, many from Venezuela, have arrived in Denver, often sent from Texas. Texas's administration said sending busloads of immigrants to Democrat-led cities is meant to be a political message. A spokesperson for Texas Governor Greg Abbott told Denverite they were sending buses to cities that they claimed have self-declared as quote-unquote sanctuary cities. That discourse has since become salient across Colorado. You just heard the El Paso County's Board of Commissioners claim it would not become a sanctuary county. And earlier this week, dozens of people gathered in Lakewood to discuss the arrival of immigrants after a flyer circulated online falsely claiming that Lakewood plans to house thousands of immigrants from Denver and become a sanctuary city. So you'll notice the term sanctuary city or county or state continues to pop up, but immigration experts say the very use of the term is flawed. Ah, how so? Well, for starters, there's no legal definition of a sanctuary city. Here's University of Colorado law professor Deep Gulasikram. It's an empty vessel in a sense. And so anybody from any part of the political spectrum can put into it what they want. Gulasikram says many cities instead declare themselves welcoming cities, a largely symbolic gesture. But those communities often pass supplementary ordinances to build on that designation and create further protections and services for immigrants. What kinds of protections do welcoming cities put in place? Well, there's no one blueprint. Some make it easier for immigrants to access city services or public benefits. Some outlaw local law enforcement from asking people's immigration status during arrests. In Denver, the city council passed a series of immigration policies in 2017. Those laws included criminal sentencing reforms and reducing how Denver law enforcement can interact with the U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement. Most notably, those reforms saw the creation of the Denver Immigrant Legal Services Fund. Money from that fund is used to help immigrants naturalize, become citizens, and find legal representation in deportation proceedings. So that's what cities are doing. Uh, Bello, can the state as a whole take action to increase immigrant rights? Yeah, it can, and it has. In 2019, lawmakers passed House Bill 1124, which grants widespread protection to Colorado residents against federal immigration enforcement. And what that means is, well, first off, the word sanctuary never appears in that bill. Among other things, it prevents law enforcement officers from arresting or detaining an individual on the basis of their immigration status. It also prevents authorities from providing an individual's immigration status to federal officials. Officers can continue to assist those officials with executing warrants issued by federal judges. And we should note, the bill, like many state laws, takes precedence over local rules set by city councils or county authorities. Where does Colorado rank compared to other states with strong immigrant protections? Yeah, the Immigrant Legal Resource Center tracks that. Colorado is pretty much in the middle of the pack, ranking higher than states like Texas and Florida, but lower than states like California, New Jersey, Illinois. While policies like a statewide ban on detaining individuals on the basis of their immigration status raises Colorado's score, state law still allows some interaction with ICE. Yeah, how can ICE interact still with local authorities? Well, first off, I should start by saying that not even the strongest immigrant protections can prevent the federal government from doing its job. 
ICE can continue to conduct its own investigations and make its own arrests anywhere in any city. And while local authorities can't provide the immigration status of detained individuals to ICE, officers can disclose that information when somebody's released from jail. Uh-huh. State and local lawmakers are continuing to work on bills that expand protection from ICE. In 2023, lawmakers passed House Bill 1100, which restricts the ability of local governments to detain immigrants on behalf of ICE. Paolo, thanks so much. Of course. CPR's Paolo Chalceda on the squishy term sanctuary city. How to serve new immigrant students is top of mind for administrators from about 20 school districts in Colorado. They have formed a newcomer's cohort. CPR education reporter Jenny Brandine filed this story from Centaurus High School in Lafayette. (laughs) Students in this English language class have a few more adults in class today, besides the teacher. Would any of you all share what your experience was like on the first day? How did it feel to have that meeting before? School administrators lie in the walls watching the class. They're part of a newcomer cohort, English language educators from across the state learning about Centaurus's process for integrating newcomers. I think this is going to be a good school for me. Centaurus alone has welcomed 35 newcomers this school year. Teachers popped into high gear, putting together a more targeted plan, a full intake session to understand the kids' backgrounds, schedules that include two periods of learning English, along with other content classes. My favorite class is, is algebra and English. My hardest class is algebra. Most of the kids say they struggle with the classes like history, government, and math because they're all in English. But they love all the support they're getting here. This girl says even her teachers who don't speak Spanish write key words on the board in Spanish. In fact, every week, the English language teachers send out tips to all the teachers in the school. They're plastered on hallway walls to help them know how to help the newcomers. This boy from Guatemala tells the administrators he loves how safe it is. No dogs chasing him on the way to school. The superintendent, Rob Anderson, asked the students what programs they might add. The boy says he wants to study mechanics to help his uncle. This school doesn't have that program. But a district official tells the students they'll find a way to get any student to the district's tech center to take classes. We also do lunch and homework help, so it's just a place to hang out, a place to get help with. The administrators take notes on all the steps Centaurus does with the new arrivals. There are community liaisons, informal Latino parent groups, wellness rooms, and a new offering, Cafecito, where kids can meet for group therapy and other mental health support. They get backpacks and school supplies, free tickets to football games, and homecoming dances. Back at Boulder Valley headquarters, the educators break into groups to review what they noticed and what they'll bring back to their own districts. Things like the huge effort to get kids involved in extracurriculars like intramural soccer or weightlifting. The full intake session with the family. I like the content language support class. That was a new idea for us. This educator was intrigued by a class where kids get support on the language or concepts they might see in a history class before they get to that class. That takes more planning time for teachers. 
Denise Lopez with the Sheridan School District says the district used to get one or two newcomers a class where a student could help translate. Now we're having maybe five or six, maybe seven in a classroom. And so now what do we do if the teacher's not bilingual and or doesn't have experience with differentiating a lesson for those kiddos? So thinking about grouping, what does that look like? Teachers are trying to tackle multiple challenges. How do they assess students? What if they're homeless? Do they repeat classes? Because that's a struggle for our kids. I've taken biology, and you want me to take it again. There are lost transcripts. There are kids that lost their transcript traveling from Venezuela in the jungle, and, and there is no one back home to be able to produce it. The day is filled with sessions to try to answer these questions. Everybody's sharing ideas. Schools have never seen newcomers on this scale before. Though there are strains on the system, the attitude in the room is positive and forward-looking. These educators say over and over they want to do what's best for kids. During a student panel, many of the kids say their dreams are simply to learn English and to be able to help their families. 17-year-old Anderson says abuse from his father affected his ability to read and write in Spanish, and he thinks that's making it hard to learn English. But he says that's in the past. Today is a new day. His favorite class is art. He says it doesn't matter if each work turns out pretty or ugly. He feels proud because he did it. And he's learning. Jenny Brendine, CPR News. When we come back, a conversation about life and death over oatmeal. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Fellow members of the motion picture industry and honored guests, this is one of the happiest moments of my life. Hattie McDaniel is the first African-American to win an Oscar, but it wasn't the only barrier she broke. She was the first black woman to sing on the radio on station KOA in Denver in 1925. McDaniel grew up in Denver and started performing at East High School, dropping out to join her brother's traveling minstrel show, and later she got to Hollywood into the motion picture industry and the role of Mammy in Gone with the Wind. Just hold on and suck in! As a black woman, McDaniel was barred from the premiere in Atlanta in 1939, and at the Oscars, she was seated separately from her co-stars. It ain't fitting, it just ain't fitting. But there were more roles for her to play and more firsts in her career. Today, Hattie McDaniel has two stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, one for motion pictures, the other for radio. A Colorado postcard from Colorado Public Radio with the support of Coble Urban and Mountain Communities. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. I'll never forget the recommendation. Years ago, a friend told me when you're in Grand Junction, there's a brunch place you have to try and you'll never guess who runs it. She was right. I wouldn't have guessed. Did you have the, a milk preference? Whole milk, okay? All right, you got it, huh? Spoon's Bistro and Bakery, famous for its indulgent cinnamon rolls, is run by the hospice here, Hope West, where Debbie Horwitz is in charge of development. We sat over oatmeal and coffee on a pleasant patio. Why would a hospice organization run a restaurant? You know, that's a really good question. And when we built this building in 2008, we had to have a kitchen for our patients and families who are upstairs in the care unit. And our CEO at the time said, you know what, I think it would be a good idea to have a restaurant as well. And there was a lot of conversation about that. The, I don't know if the board 
at that time was 100% in favor of it. But since then, they've changed their mind <laughs> because it allows people to get comfortable with us before they need us. Hope West also has a thrift store in town. As for my breakfast, the oatmeal is pitch perfect. Not runny and not roofing material either. Cassie Mitchell is also having oatmeal. She's the CEO and a former ER and hospice nurse. Do you remember being surprised when you learned, before you came to Hope West, that they had a restaurant? It's funny, I remember when I was interviewing and they were running through the list of programs and services and they said, we have a restaurant. And I said, you have a what? (laughs) I don't know anything about running a restaurant. I can run care, but I don't know about running a restaurant. And they're like, it'll be okay. We'll help you figure it out. Cassie, you've come to see the bistro as not incongruous, though, with hospice. Well, I see it as a way, as Deb said, to introduce the community to Hope West as an organization to destigmatize some of end-of-life care, hospice care, and also to build awareness around the programs and services of Hope West. When Spoons first opened, there was a couple who lived nearby, and the um, woman said, I want to go to dinner at Spoons. And he said, what spoons? And she said, you know, it's that restaurant where hospice is. And he said, there is no way I'm going to go eat dinner at a hospice. You know, so some time went by, and one day they got in the car to go to dinner. And she didn't say a word. She just drove, and she drove around here in the parking lot and parked. And they came in and had dinner, and he goes... How come I didn't even know about this place? This is fabulous. And she said, well, it's actually Hope West Hospice. And so it was a complete surprise to him, but overcome the stigma of the fear and things that go around end of life. How important is Spoons to funding the mission of hospice in I mean, this is like a pretty vast area that you cover, isn't it? Yeah, so right now our tip jar, for example, every tip that is donated to Hope West uh, supports the care center, which is upstairs, and it allows us to do unfunded care. And so we choose to dedicate a full-time social worker and a full-time chaplain and a full-time nurse practitioner, which are not things that would normally occur in a unit that size, but because of philanthropy dollars, we're able to do those things. Tell me about this cowboy from Colburn nearby. (laughs) So Colburn ranching community, and he was a rancher his whole life. He was receiving hospice care up in uh, Colburn, but frequently there are pain symptoms that can't be managed at the home. So they brought him here to the care center But this guy wanted to die at his ranch. He didn't want to die at the care center. And so we got the ambulance and took him back to Colburn. And I could tell you that if we were a for-profit hospice, they probably wouldn't have had the decision to take the ambulance ride up to Colburn uh, because ambulance rides are expensive. But... What philanthropy does is that, as Cassie said, it allows us to go above and beyond and do the next best thing for the patient and their family, regardless of what the payment is. 
And he wanted to die on his land. Yes, and he did. We got him to his ranch, and he um, he was able to look out these windows, these bay windows, at his ranch and his horses, and he died, you know, peacefully. Does this work make you rethink your own life and death? It's interesting. As a nurse, we're usually called to be in healthcare, and you have to be called to stay in healthcare these days. It makes you live in the moment. Because you see people at their best and at their very worst, but you see some of the most beautiful reunions occur in end of life. You know, families that have been apart for years or conflict or strife that has occurred for years and people either resolve it or they put it on the shelf because they know this time is sacred. It's important. And so they lean in. It fills your heart. Um, I always tell people, they, they ask, how in the world can you be a hospice nurse? isn't that so sad? And, and I say, no, actually, it's, it's beautiful. I get far more than I ever give in terms of being able to serve. How does it make you think about your own death? I know what I want and what I don't want. I can clearly say, and I've had many conversations with my children at 21 and 19 think I'm crazy because they know exactly what to decide when the time comes. I'm not even 50 yet, and I have my living will and my advanced directives. And Because, again, I've, I've seen when it goes really well, and I've seen when it doesn't go really well. And so I have the unique experience of being able to see and plan ahead. Deb, same question for you. I think my husband and I also have... Um, have an understanding of what we want and what we don't want and that the quality of life becomes greater than the quantity of life. Um, I'm over 50. (laughs) It's interesting because the older you get, the more you actually think about it. Like, I'll look at obituaries, which I do, sort of part of the business, But you look at people's birth dates and you think, oh, that's okay, 1938, I've got some time. But then you see, you know, 1951 and you think, oh, my God, that's me. (laughs) So it puts things in perspective in terms of what battles you're going to pick that day. Does a sense of humor help in this line of work? Yes, we're accused of having a very odd sense of humor, but but you have to. You have to have the ability to decompress. As you can imagine, working in this, even on the good days, they're hard because you are seeing people dying. You're seeing people declining. And so to be able to laugh with your teammates, um, to be able to find joy, to be able to just sit around and have a meal like we are here at Spoons, it's fun. A lot of times I'll come in in the morning or the afternoon and there are different teams who serve hospice patients who are here having a meal together and they're laughing and they're fellowshipping and they're enjoying each other's company because that's how they get through. What do we get wrong about death, do you think? Um, That it is, and this is biased because I'm a hospice nurse, that it is um, scary and that it is not natural because it is both of those things. It is It is a little scary, of course, for somebody who has never experienced it before, but it is a very natural process. We are all going to die. Um, I used to be a hospice admission nurse, and so I was the first person through the door a lot of times after a referral was made, and people would be absolutely terrified that I was coming. And then when I left, I was the next best thing to slice bread because they knew that they had help and support and resources and someone who was going to lean into where they were in this process. And so I would often tell families during that first conversation, 
not making a decision to elect hospice care is making a decision. And it is important that you make an informed decision. And I just want you to have the information so that you know how to get the care that you want at the time you need it. That makes me think that you deal a fair bit with denial. I mean, of course we're all going to die, but we, we haven't necessarily come to terms with that, is what you're saying? Well, and by and large, I love my healthcare community, but we don't, we don't talk about it. We have the next treatment and we have the next thing. And we don't always have, as Debbie said, the quality versus quantity conversation. I often would say to families, just because you can doesn't mean you should. You have to decide what's right for you. And we will support you through that decision-making process. But unfortunately, healthcare is not very good about giving people all of the options. It was like a gut punch to hear you say that. My stepfather is in hospice, not here, elsewhere. And the tension between what we can do to prolong life and what we should do to prolong life, it's so difficult to navigate. And different family members have different views on what to do and how to intervene and whether to intervene. Yeah, which is why the interdisciplinary team that hospice has is so incredibly important. We are a group of healthcare individuals. So from providers, docs and nurse practitioners, nurses, aides, social workers, chaplains, volunteers, we rally around this family and we, we help create unity where we can. We have those hard conversations. We lean into this family member is in a good place and this other family member is not necessarily in a good place. And how do we bring folks together? And ultimately, at the end of the day, if it's the patient and their decisional, what does the patient want? How do we get rallied around what the patient wants? What a conversation to have over brunch. Thank you so much for being with me. Thank you for having us. We appreciate that you came. Absolutely. Thanks, Ryan. Cassie Mitchell and Debbie Horwitz of Hope West Hospice, which has a popular restaurant in Grand Junction, Spoons. We spoke in September. Before we go, join me in congratulating my co-host. Without further ado, it is my pleasure present the first 2024 Juanita Bray Community Service Award to Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Chandra received this recognition from the Denver Public Library for her work covering issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion. She accepted the honor on a snowy afternoon last weekend. Well, I didn't expect this, so I'm first, but I uh, just want to say thank you all so much for embracing me and my family. I've been here 12 years. And uh, it was a huge transition moving from the Deep South in days like this <laughs> in Atlanta and New Orleans. But uh, just want to say thank you. And um, I just appreciate the support and for people opening up to me as a journalist and being able to tell these stories about the diverse communities that make Denver and Colorado so great. So please listen to Colorado Matters and uh, send us your ideas. Thank you so much. My co-host accepting the 2024 Juanita Gray Community Service Award. Arts advocate Joanna Norris also was recognized. The ceremony is held every February as part of Black History Month. This year, it returned to the newly renovated Blair Caldwell African American Research Library in Historic Five Points. If you haven't heard our tour of the updated space check it out at CPR.org. The award, by the way, is named for a former library staffer whose colleagues say left a legacy of giving in Metro Denver. Congrats again to Chandra. 
whom this closing song is for. She is a huge Prince fan. That's Colorado Matters for today. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC.